Let's turn with me now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Then he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. For they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are those, very much like in the story, those who have been summoned to hear from their Lord, given instructions and given a gift. And Lord, we pray that we would in the end be among those found to have been faithful, that we might receive this word with understanding and with obedience, and, Lord, that we might be indeed rewarded for having received and, and heard this gift with much profit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come again to this parable in Luke chapter 19 verses 11 to 27. I mentioned last time the problem of what to call this parable. It's usually given the title, the parable of the minas or something like that. However, again, that is to focus entirely on one storyline of the parable to the exclusion of the other. Not everyone received minas, and their, their story, that of the citizens, is pretty important as well. For which reason, then, I prefer to call it the parable of the returning king. And I suppose... At least it keeps our focus where it should be, which is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, 
This time, last time, we divided it into two uh, sermons, one dealing with the citizens, that was what we dealt with last week, and this morning we're dealing with his servants, and that is the bulk of the text. Now, again, the context is in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, the disciples obviously like the idea of the kingdom of God, and they wanted it, and they thought it was going to happen right then, that they would be the chief ministers in this new administration when Jesus is soon enough crowned in Jerusalem. And Jesus, again, has to correct them and say that, no, actually, he's going to go away for some time, a good long time, actually, uh, in order that he might receive the kingdom from his father's hand. And in the meantime, he has work for them to do. And that's the point here. They are going to be entrusted with an important gift, and Jesus expects them to make good use of it. Now, those uh, who do use this gift uh, faithfully will certainly receive exactly what they were hoping for at that moment. They were hoping already to be given authority over ten cities or five cities or, or whatever it might be under the administration of King Jesus. And he says, those who do what I tell you to do, yes, you will receive precisely that reward. But, of course, there's another possibility. There are those, in their lack of faith and lack of obedience, decide that they're just going to keep the gift untouched and unused, and Jesus has a message for those people as well. So the title this morning is Christ and His Servants, with these three points. The nobleman endows his servants, good servants rewarded disproportionately, and the wicked servant loses what he had. One, the nobleman endows his servants. Two, good servants rewarded disproportionately. Three, the wicked servant loses what he had. So this, again, is about Christ and his servants. And we consider, first of all, the nobleman endows his servants. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. He called ten of his servants. Now, notice that these servants are, di- are different than the citizens. In contrast to those rebellious citizens who say that we will not have this man to reign over them, he calls these servants and they come. Obviously, they are, at least in some sense, reigning. He is reigning over them because they hear his voice and they come. Now, we can say, therefore, that these are part of his church. That's what this, these servants are speaking about. They're Christians. They're part of the outward, visible church, people that would be found in the Lord's day on the Lord's, in the Lord's house. Now, whether they're true believers or not is another matter, and we'll consider that later on. But let me just say that this is exactly what happens each and every Lord's day, that the Lord calls to his servants. He does so. He's got, he has his word. And he calls to his servants to gather to himself every Lord's Day, and he has a gift for them, and a gift which comes with instructions. Now, I could say that he has instructions for them and also a gift, but actually, the the means of grace, the word of God, and the sacraments that sustain you, these things are first and foremost a gift of grace to you. 
They are of his goodness and mercy and grace that you might profit from it. That's what it is, first of all. Yes, the gift comes with instructions. And yes, in some sense, the gift is itself instructions. But let's not forget the good gift that the master gives to his servants each and every Sunday. Now, what is the gift he endows with them in this parable? Well, it's a mina. What is a mina? It's a laborer's wage for 100 days. So I, let, I don't know exactly what a, a laborer makes per day, but let's say it's around 5,000 pounds. Okay, and each one of them gets the same amount. It's a little different than the parallel text in Matthew in which they're given different amounts. Well, anyways, what are his instructions when he gives each man this mina, this 5,000 pounds? His instructions are do business, occupy in a, a business pragmatic way. That's, by the way, what the word is. If you were to read it in Greek, it's, that's what it is. Be pragmatic, do pragmatics, do business, make profit, make money. And in the parable, he's talking about using that mina in a profitable way to buy things for trading. And the Lord's expectation, if we didn't know, if we didn't understand otherwise, we would, we would definitely get it from his expectation expressed in verse 15, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading, because that was the expectation that every man would gain by trading this mina. And he says, so do business. Till I come. That's really important as well. Till I come. Because he was going away for a time. His disciples forgot about it. His disciples were still thinking his kingdom was going to be right then in Jerusalem. As they were, they're only days away from it now. They're only, they're only 15 miles away from Jerusalem by this point in the story. And they can taste this kingdom that they're going to be elevated to positions of authority in. But no... There is a delay, there is a time, till I come. But he would eventually return. And that should not be forgotten either. So this is the nobleman's endowment. He gives everyone a a valuable gift, a mina. They didn't deserve it in the first place. They did nothing for it. But he does expect there to be profit. And he gives the instructions accordingly. Well, secondly then, the good servants receive disproportionate reward. In verse 15, and so it was when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. I mentioned last time, it is to the glory of kings to to judge, to execute judgment upon their enemies. And likewise, it is the privilege and the glory of kings to reward their faithful servants. You know, Christ most certainly will be doing both of those things when he returns. Some people wonder, how is it that we're saved and yet we're also spoken of some kind of judgment or some kind of accounting that's going to happen? Well, these are different things for different sets of people. He is going to come to execute judgment upon the, the rebels. But even before that, it seems, the Bible seems to say, that he's going to recognize publicly and reward his faithful servants. Okay, those are different things, but the king does both of those things when he returns. In, in Revelation eleven eighteen, your wrath has come in the time of the, ju- the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. 
Both of those things are going to be happening when Christ returns. Judgment for the unbelievers, reward for his own people. Now, so he comes to do that, and that he might know how much every man had gained by trading, because again, this was his reasonable expectation. There is this, the the conditions must have been favorable, because we know he's not uh, unfair and unjust. That, That this gift was a good one. And there was a right expectation in the business climate of that time that in the time given, and we're, we, we have an idea that this is a, a decent amount of time, somewhere between now and the end, surely there was more than enough opportunity for there to be profit, for there to be a return on that. There should be gain. And you know, by the way, that's what it says about Christians. That there should be fruit. doesn't mean the fruit happens immediately doesn't mean that the fruit is uh, always the same for everyone in the, the amount of it, some more or some less. The expectation is that there will be fruit on us by the end. Anyhow, verse 16, then came the first saying, Master, they've been called, right? They've been summoned and they have to give account. Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And it's very humble, isn't it? He doesn't say, I, because I'm so wonderful, have gone out and earned for you ten minas, but rather your mina, this very valuable thing which I didn't have previously, which you put into my hand, your mina has gained ten more. And what is the, res- the response in verse 17? He says, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And then without further ado, he says the same thing to the second one. The second one came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Okay, let's just break this down into three things. What's the evaluation? What is the reward? And what is the basis for the evaluation and reward? Okay, the evaluation is well done, good servant. That's great. That words we'd love to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There may have been ups and downs along the way, but the point is that this person has not hidden the mina, has not disregarded the gift. They have been busy, they have been occupying, and what do you know, there is fruit from it. Well done, thou good servant. That's the evaluation. What's the reward? That's not the end of it. He gives an evaluation. Well done. That's good enough. He doesn't need anything more than that, but he says the reward, have authority over ten cities. Ten cities. He was given, he was faithful in the use of 5,000 pounds. Now, I'm not going to diminish 5,000 pounds, but still, that's not the same thing as ten cities, is it? Yet because of the faithfulness, see, that's, the reward is this disproportionate thing. And the, the basis then for that evaluation, the basis for that reward is because you were faithful In a very little. Somehow that counts for an awful lot to the Lord Jesus. Whenever he speaks of reward, whenever he speaks of the things that he's expecting of us, it always comes down to faithfulness. That's what matters to him. You go to those letters of the seven churches in Revelation. We were recently there with the, the students. And you look from one end to the other and it's all about faithfulness. There's nothing about outcomes. It's just, have you been faithful to the gifts? Have you been faithful to to the instructions, to the word that I gave you? Or have you compromised? 
Or have you failed to do these things at all? The issue is faithfulness. And it is upon that basis that he gives such a disproportionate reward. And again, that reminds us of the parable of the, the seed in Matthew thirteen twenty three. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And we know that that is a situation of all the different categories of seed. Only one is the true believer, and that is the one who produces fruit. The good servants receive disproportionate reward. But thirdly, the wicked servant loses what he had. In verse 20, then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Wow. Well, first of all, he calls him an austere man. That's a very literal translation, but the lexicons would say it's harsh, rough, rigid, strict, exacting, a man who expects to get blood out of a stone. In other words, you know what all this is the opposite of? The opposite of gracious. The opposite of gracious. I knew you to be a harsh man. It's not interesting. I don't know Christ that way. I know Christ to be a gracious man, a merciful man. But you remember all throughout the, the Gospel of Luke, you can come in two different modes. And once you press the mode, everything is colored in accordance with the mode that you're dealing with God. If you press the justice mode and you, you're there for everything you see about him, you see him as an austere man, a rough, harsh, rigid man. It would be different, of course, if this man had approached him in the frame of mercy and of grace, but he didn't. I knew you to be a harsh man. And if you interact with God like that, if you interact with God as your judge, expecting justice, and that is exactly the way that you will find him to be. And that is what happens here. He says, out of your own mouth I will judge you. He doesn't say, you're right. Okay, let's, let's be clear. You're right, I am a harsh man, and I have unreasonable expectations. He doesn't say that. He says, let's say, for the sake of argument, that I am as you say. What would have been the reasonable thing, servant, if, you, if what you say is true? That I, I reap where I don't sow, and all the rest of it. Then what would have been the thing for you to do? Would it have been reasonable for you to put this away in a handkerchief? Is that the right thing to do when you know I'm coming back in my harshness and austerity and expecting blood from a stone? No, of course not. At the very least, you should have put this in with the bankers in order that at least there'd be interest when I returned. But you didn't even do that much. You didn't even do that much. So he judges him according to his own self-understanding, even though that's not true of him. That's not the fullness of the truth about Jesus Christ. He said, not an austere man. So far from the opposite, we've just seen that. We've just seen. He's not, he's not saying, well, okay, thank you for carrying out what you've done. 
give me back what is mine, and I'll give you a pat on the head. No, he says, have ten cities. That's not the, that's not the actions of a harsh, exacting man. It's, it's quite the opposite. But even still, even still he judges them from his own words to do what would only have been reasonable. Now, let me say, here's, this is a question that I debated for some time. Is this man, I call him the one mina man, or the handkerchief man, is he a believer or not? Is he saved? It took me a while to think about these things because there's a difference between the citizens, right, and, and, this, and this servant. And ultimately I came to the conclusion that he's, he's not a believer, okay? And I think that the, the, uh, we can be guided to, by some extent by the parallel passage in Matthew 25, 30, and this unprofitable servant is what he's called there. And do you know what happens to the unprofitable servant in Matthew 25? And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so I think that that helps us to understand. But as I said, there are significant diff- uh, there, are, there are more than enough even in the passage itself to explain that it's not, he's not a believer. Because the question is, what does this servant think about his Lord? The answer is, I feared you because you're an austere man. Does that sound like a Christian to you? We, we have a right fear, a right respect of God. But our actions are not determined by our, our fear of an austere man coming to get us. That's not my experience. I hope it's not yours. Because that's not the gospel of grace and that's not the way that, that Christ has been revealed to us in the word of God. And to add to it, this, this servant wasn't even obedient. He told them to do business, but this man didn't obey. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. By, any, by whatever way, by the man's self-understanding of who Christ is, he's wrong. He's not a believer. By the, his own obedience or lack thereof, he's not a believer. And by the reality that there's no fruit. Because as I say, there will be fruit from every true believer. Some more, some less. Look, you can see in your own gardens, can't you, that some of them, some plants, some trees are just far more fruitful than others. But you don't say to the... The, the one tree that only has two apples or, or two little berries on it, you say, it, obviously, it's not, a, it's not a true plant. You, you understand it's not a thistle. You understand it's still a, a, a blackberry brush or something like that. It's, it, but some of them are more fruitful. But if you come to one that has no fruit at all and, and never has and no indication of it whatsoever, then you say, well, maybe it isn't actually what I thought it was. And so it is here. There's no fruit. There's no faith. There's only fear and the wrong kind of that because right fear would have led him to obedience. Now, what does the Lord then think about this servant? That's also helpful, isn't it? What the servant thinks about the Lord is important. He thinks the wrong things. What about this, the, the Lord thinking about the servant? He says he is a wicked servant. Do we find that sort of language on the lips of the Lord Jesus with regard to his, his own believers? Hardly. Scarce is let such language to be found. It doesn't mean that we're all perfect. It doesn't mean that he doesn't see our sin. That's not the declaration that he gives to his own people, believing people. Now, what about the judgment? Verse 24, then he says, He said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. And then he gives this explanation in verse 26. 
For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Brothers and sisters, we've been speaking of many different themes in the Gospel of Luke, and this is also a theme of the Gospel of Luke. It is dealing with those who have been given a precious gift. It speaks to those who have been hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine this this amazing opportunity of their being in the presence of the incarnate Lord as he went about his public ministry. And then you can imagine the dismay as so many of them trampled that gift underfoot. And what he is saying is just what was said back in Luke 16.10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? There is this relationship. There is this expectation that Christ has that the things that he gives, even if they are little in your sight, that you would be faithful to these things. And those who are not, even what they have will be taken away from them. Now, even the people in the parable, as Jesus says it, thinks that this is a bit much. Right? Even in the course of the parable, in, in the words of Jesus Christ himself, he says that there are those who are probably going to say, wow, what's that? You're going to take away this man's one mina and give it to the one who already has ten? Absolutely you will. And if any of us run businesses or organizations, that is exactly what you'll do with your people as well. Because what you want is your things to be under a faithful hand. And if someone has been unfaithful, then, of course, you take whatever portfolio, whatever gifting, whatever things of use, and you put it under the hand of the one who is faithful because that's only the wise and right thing to do. And furthermore, it is only a wise and just judgment upon someone who has been so patently uh, unfaithful that he should not be entrusted, he should not be allowed to carry on with the gift that he has. Even what he has will be taken away from him. Now this brings us immediately then to our application. The first application is certainly that we should take heed with regard to the word of God. Okay? Christ has called and you have come. Wonderful. He has given you a gift. A gift that comes with instructions and the question, my question for you, is what are you going to do with that gift? Are you going to squander it? Are you going to hide it? Are you going to forget it? Or are you going to be faithful? Are you going to use it? We mentioned Luke 16. What about Luke 8, 18? Take heed how you hear. For whoever has to him, more will be given. And whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. This is the word of Jesus, not mine. And what I'm saying is that Christ will not forever hand over his precious gifts to those who do not receive them. His precious gifts to those who do not use them for profit. Eventually, he will say, thank you very much and take that gift right back from you. If you are here and you have not received this gift and you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I beg you to think again. Actually, every opportunity that you hear the, the gift, the, t- the counter is, is counting down, and I don't know when it stops. I don't know how many ticks are left. You know, we have these electronic devices, and they're set to go a certain amount of things. Uh, sometimes we might know what they are, and sometimes we don't. I don't know how many opportunities you have left, whether because of, of your circumstances moving you someplace, whether your heart becoming hardened against the gospel, or whether the Lord takes your life, or whether the Lord returns because he is returning at any moment. I don't know how many opportunities you have. Receive the gift. Receive the word. Take heed how you hear because you certainly will be held accountable for having heard the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, I say to believers, do business in your vocations. All right, it is a command. It's absolutely a command. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You say, which one is that? Well, believe it or not, the, the fourth commandment, which has to do with the Sabbath day, and most of us, I think, are attuned to thinking only about remembering the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, which is good. That's, that is the primary bent of it. But let's not forget the other part of it, which is that six days you shall work and do your labor. You understand, of course, that that is every bit as much of the command as, as keeping the Sabbath day. The God is the God of all of our time, and he gets to tell us what we should do with our time. Now, people speak sometimes a lot about the Protestant work ethic. And let me say that at the most basic level, what is a Protestant work ethic? It's simply that Christians obey the moral law. That's it. All right? People who aren't Christians don't tend to obey the moral law, and working is part of the moral law. And so you have people who, who believe that they should keep the, the word of God, and they understand that working is part of it. Then we understand then that they're going to keep it. Beyond that, of course, Second Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Isn't it funny? Now, do you know the situation in Thessalonians? What was their problem? All these churches had their own problems. The, the Galatians had departed from the gospel. The Corinthians were involved in all kinds of immorality and, and schism and, and disunity. What, about, what was the situation with the Thessalonians? Do you know what their problem was? They were all too aware that Christ was returning. And they had decided that they were going to drop what they were doing. Some people decided to stop working entirely because they were just expecting the Lord to return and... And therefore, they, they didn't do anything. See, they were like the servant, the one Mina man, the handkerchief man. They'd been told to occupy, they'd been told to do business, but they off their own bat decided that they're not going to do this. No. Paul's word to them is, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now look, we all have different situations. We're in different uh, parts of life. 
And there is no doubt a, a spooling up of the amount of capacity for work we have and a spooling down as, as we come closer to the end and our bodies degenerate and all that. So I don't mean, but at every point you should use the capacity that God has given. And if you don't, what's going to happen? You will be a busybody. Right? If you don't use the time and the, the, the things that God has given in prayer, please. If you don't have anything else that you can do, well, you can at least serve your brothers and sisters. You can serve me. You can serve God in prayer. But if you choose not to do that, you're going to find things to do. The devil will find things for you to do. You know that the idle hands are the devil's workshop. is very true. That's why there are busybodies. Now, those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, beyond that, beyond the fact that this is part of the moral law, beyond the fact that this is a commandment, that we have the great opportunity to glorify God in what we do. And that's wonderful. We also, that's part of that Protestant work ethic, is that we don't just do it because we have to, and we're commanded to. Those things are true, but also because we know we have the wonderful opportunity to glorify God in the things that we do. And God truly has entrusted gifts to us. Not all the same. We understand that. That's what's different about this parable. It's more like the parable in Matthew. Some have more talents than others. But we put these things to use for the glory of God. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you work or whether you sleep, you do all these things to the glory of God. So you should do business in your vocation. Secondly, you should do business in the gospel. This, of course, is the most direct thrust of the passage. It's directed towards these disciples who would be entrusted with this most precious gift, the gospel itself. He was going to leave, and he didn't want them to be hiding this under a bushel. He didn't want them to be, well, the Lord is gone, now what? Well, better not use this word of God that we've been given better not go around telling other people about it. Let's just put it in a handkerchief and wait until he comes. That would be disastrous. That would be utterly counter to, to all the Lord's intentions for his church and the world. So we, he says, no, I don't want you to do that. The, the nature of this thing that I've given you is that it should increase, right? That's the way the, 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 the kingdom of God is described. It's like leaven put in a lump and soon enough it leavens the whole lump. He mentions all sorts of growing things to compare the, the kingdom of God to because the expectation is ordinarily it will certainly grow. This is good seed, and ordinarily it's going to increase. The expectation is that it should increase. Now, what do we say here? In this place, in this time, in Gateshead in 2016. Are you frustrated? Sometimes with the lack of the progress of the gospel, I am. And I, I hope we are, and I hope that never changes. Uh, because if Christ's expectation is that the good seed will, will increase, that the leaven will, will fill the whole lump, then our right expectation is surely, surely, that the gospel will carry on and be blessed, and we'll get more and more believers. Well, we are thankful for everyone who has come in these last seven and a half years. But, you know, we look for more, don't we? I certainly do. And we ought to be like a farming co-op in which we are praying for one another, in which we are thinking about opportunities to help with one another and to do this. You know, we, am I some great evangelist? You know that I'm not. 
But what we can do is work together. What we can do is help one another to have the opportunities to pray for one another when we do have the opportunities and to, to fulfill what is not there. You know, I mentioned in, in the evangelism class, it's sort of like the, the, the whole NHS system. There are so many different levels of those who provide us care, and we need them all, right? We need, for instance, we need an ambulance driver. The ambulance driver isn't the same thing as a surgeon. We need both of those things. We need first aiders, right? Sometimes first aiders are, are better at that what they do than the surgeons, in a sense of providing right on the spot immediate medical care that is needed. Well, we in this church have everything. We have, we have first aiders and we have paramedics and we have ambulance drivers and we have nurses and we have doctors. We've got the whole deal. And we need to work together to bring people to Christ. Let's do business in the gospel. Because when the Lord returns, I want there to be profit for us all. I mean, how sad would it be for us to be, to, to be lining up and, and for us maybe not to be the one mean a man, but we've, we've got the you know, one mean and a half, and we'd feel bad for ourselves and for everyone around us. Actually, we want to be looking forward to that day. Fourthly and finally, we need to look to the reward. Okay, the whole point is that the faithful servants, although they call themselves unprofitable servants. And let's not imagine ourselves to be anything other than that. We call ourselves unprofitable servants. Yet in faith, you can expect to receive a reward. It's true. You know, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two twelve, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Do you believe that? Do you think the Lord spoke in vain when he said these things? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. My reward is with me. Now, he means, yes, on the one hand, to reward the wicked, to reward the rebellious, to reward those who are are unrepentant sinners with judgment. Yes, but he also means to reward his servants. And we say, no, we're too spiritual for that. Look, if Christ decides of all the things that he could possibly say in the last chapter which he speaks to us in the whole Bible, and he says, my reward is with me to reward my servants, why are we more spiritual than he? He expects us to have our minds thinking about not only Christ's return, but of the reward that is in his hands. That should rightly serve as a motivation for us. And I think it's a work of the devil, actually. That the Christian church has been ter- so turned aside from any idea of there being rewards. As if it, it doesn't matter to, to Christ at all how we live from the moment we're saved until the end. And it doesn't matter at all whether we're faithful or unfaithful, fruitful or unfruitful. No, it does matter to him. It does. And it should matter to us as well. Now, of course, the reward we get will be out of all proportion with the merits of our work. Okay? Again, we're talking about meanness here, not, not cities. And our confession says, 16.6, Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, right? You understand, in this life, and let's not pretend that the things that we've done for Christ have been so perfect. They've all been tinged with wrong motivations here and there, We've all been lazy. We've all been unprofitable in various ways. But looked upon them in his son. God is going to look upon them in his son. He's pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. 
although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Isn't that wonderful? This is the so-called exacting and harsh Westminster Confession. Though accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections, because it speaks of the so-called harsh and exacting Lord Jesus Christ, who is anything but, but rather is a gracious Lord to his people. And the least thing, even if it's a cup of cold water, yet he's going to reward it. Let me say, there is no sin, there's no unrepentant sinner who's going to escape the judgment of Christ, and there is no good deed done by his servants that is going to escape reward. It will find you out. We can be thankful and we can be secure in that. Now, let's say again, what is the fact that the reward is different? What does that imply? The fact that one servant gets ten and the other one gets five? The fact that there will be differential rewards in heaven. We've spoken of this in the eschatology class. We, we were speaking of these different degrees in glory. And we know that this is going to happen. And what Edward says, this is his advice to you. Do whatever you can to secure for yourself the greatest situation in eternity. All right? That's not unspiritual. That's not worldly. That's being heavenly minded. Forget about doing what's going to secure for yourself the best situation in this life. Secure for yourself the best situation in life to come. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there are those who call the Lord Jesus Christ harsh and austere, one who expects to get blood from a stone. But, Lord, we have not found him to be this way. We know that this is the lie of Satan. We rather see what he has done, and we read his words, and we know how he has dealt with us personally, and we know him to be a gracious and kind-hearted, tender man. And, Lord, we know that he will reign, and he will certainly judge. But, Lord, how amazed we are of just how disproportionately he rewards his servants. for doing the least little thing for him, Upon his return, they receive these great and huge, eternal, disproportionate rewards. Lord, this is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we serve. It is according to his royal generosity that he gives gifts to his servants. Lord, how we pray that even as he is distributed to those who are here who may not be believers at all, that these gifts would not be trampled upon, but rather, Lord, that they would be received in faith. And Lord, as you have this day even given a gift to your servants, a gift that comes with instructions on how to use it, how we pray, Lord, that we would use it well and be profitable. And we do pray that we would be profitable servants, not like the unprofitable servant, but Lord, that we would see fruit. Fruit in our vocations, in the many things that you've called us to, and fruit particularly in the gospel. But Lord, when you return, we would not be trembling and seeking to be in the the back of the line. But Lord, somehow in your power and your mercy and your grace that you would enable us to be fruitful servants. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.